Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. And as you're turning, I want to let you know what I'll be doing this morning uh, as we will look at part 2 of Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Last week, we tackled really the, the majority of the message, but there were some parts that I thought I really wanted to come back and revisit again, as well as some new thoughts that I had um, to share with you. Um, I, in one sense, you saw my little weekly update that I regretted rushing through that last point a bit. And so I thought it would be good for us to reconsider um, some of these valuable lessons from Revelation 2, 1 through 7, uh, which is entitled The Prescription for a Drifting Heart. This is right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate um, evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember the deeds are therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove the lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. An important message for us, isn't it? And I uh, got uh, feedback from a number of people and how it was instrumental. Or, uh, we often say the timing was perfect. And sometimes we hear messages, and I think we've all been there before. We will say, oh, uh, that was meant for me. Uh, at times, someone may even say, how did you know? And that's a wonderful experience because it really is an occasion of God caring for your soul. It is God in his beautiful province that is saying, here is a message. If you would hear it, that it would encourage you, that it would enlighten you, that it would mature you if you would submit to God's word. And it's an amazing thing because you can be in a group this size or larger or much larger. And someone says to you, how did you know that? It's as if you were speaking to me. And in one sense, every message can take on that element, um, but there seems to be at times particular lessons where they're very personal and you're going through something in life and the word of God speaks through you through a messenger. And I try as best I can to be a messenger whenever, whenever I come to bring you the word of God. Because one asks, there is a need for this message. And what is the need? Even as we said last week, the need is this. There is a propensity to drift from having an intimate relationship with God. That is, we can be very involved in things that are commendable and even not just commendable, but things that are commanded. And in our involvement in those things in ministry, we may not still have an intimate relationship with God. It is possible to be busy with the work of ministry and standing up for ministry and being courageous in ministry, but not be intimately engaged with God. 
See, I'm convinced uh, that, again, you are here uh, this morning because you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true or not? Is that true or not? You want to grow in the knowledge of him. And as you grow in the knowledge of him, uh, that does what for your own life? It, It enlarges the soul. It matures the mind. And it prepares you to not only be that representative amongst those that know you, but most definitely those that don't know you, those that are in the world. We can be lights in the world, but we can't be a light if our love for God is growing dim. Then what light are we exhibiting then? What are we showing? Then if we are that way, if we don't have an intimate relationship with God, if we're not, if we don't have a growing relationship with God, then whatever we're displaying is not of God. It's just of religion. It's of rote. That's all it is. But it should be coming from a heart that loves the Savior. I mean, one could ask this. How can a person be emotionally indifferent to save you who would in fact leave heaven? He would take on the limitations of human flesh. He would walk among sinful men. He would subject himself to doubts and to insults and, and even to the brutality of his own creation. He would receive slaps in the face. He would be spat upon. He would be flogged and he would be crucified. And the question is, how can we be indifferent to such a savior? But at times we can be. And for the church at Ephesus, they had become indifferent. They had left their first love. This is what verse four tells us. Um, What makes the heart drift from a savior? I mean, think about it for a moment. And after that crucifixion, what does he do? According to his own word, he raises himself again from the dead. And then he empowers his people with the spirit of God so that they can live the Christian life. And one day he will return from heaven. But presently he is at heaven at the right hand of majesty. This is a wonderful theme that we see throughout the book of Hebrews. And now he has sat down. He can rest now because his life was a satisfaction of God's holy standard. And what does he do for us now? Even in this very moment, he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. And then one day, despite all the chaos that we see in our world, and in particular in our own country, Jesus Christ is going to come back one day and make all things right, is he not? And this is why we must have our hope in him and look to him. But while we are here in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this madness, we must grow in an affectionate relationship with God. It is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? And what else? And what else? Indeed, and your strength, all of you. You think to yourselves, how is it that according to 2 Corinthians 9, 15, Paul refers to Jesus Christ as an indescribable gift that somehow, like the church at Ephesus, they had left that first love. So he becomes not only he becomes instead of an indescribable gift, perhaps in their minds, one that was describable, that was ordinary. That's unfortunate. I think we all may remember times as a kid, uh, since we're not too far removed from Christmas. I remember times as a kid growing up in Florida um, when we got up early in the morning and all of a sudden there were gifts under the Christmas tree. 
They weren't there the night before. How did this happen? And eventually we grew up and we know that, um, you know, parents put them under there. Grandpa, our aunt, our uncle put them there. But there was still that anticipation of going out and getting those gifts. And I remember you just tore the wrappings off of it, all the effort that was placed into those wrappings. You tore them off and you opened those gifts and how wonderful they were, at least for a while. And we know that what happens, especially as a kid, what happens to those gifts, the thing that we thought, oh, I can't believe I have one of these, becomes something that's boring, and we move on to something else. And it's amazing how sometimes some of the most sophisticated gifts that I receive were really replaced with just the basic things in life. The things that I remember most were just having a bicycle and going with my buddies, and we're driving over to Winter Garden. And going through sort of back then was swampland. Now it's probably some 18-hole golf course. And, and now we go through the swampland and have fun and say, is that, a, is that a moccasin? Yes, that is a moccasin. Don't do too close. And literally we would, because growing up in Florida, we saw these things. Hey, there's a gator right there. Let's throw some rocks at it. <laughs> no, we did these things. Trust me. Yeah. I mean, we swam in lakes where you could see a gator nearby. Those are memories that I had. And I'm still here, amen, right? <laughs> but some of those gifts that I had, it's like, ah, whatever. I'm not quite in love with the way that I thought I would be. Paul says he is an indescribable gift. If in fact Jesus Christ is an indescribable gift, how does one become indifferent to him? How do you not treasure him? The same way you did when you first opened that package. How do you not treasure him? And now let's think about not only a package, but let's think, how do you not treasure him that first time he opened your heart and he opened your eyes and you could see the treasure for which he is? And then we become indifferent like the church at Ephesus. But I have this against you, verse 4, you have left your first love. And we noted already that um, the problem with the church was, or with Ephesus was, that they had three problems, really. There was a personality of the church, in which was verses 1 to 3 and verse 6. There was a problem of the church, because it was verse 4. And then there was a prescription for the heart that drifts. Let me go back just briefly on the first one. The problem, because we just, the personality, I'm sorry, let's just review, and I want to give them to you because we covered these last week. We noted that it was a serving church. He said here, your labor and your toil. Notice what it clearly says in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, he says. But for now, simply labor and toil. And this word for toil, the idea is a rich word, a, a word that gives us this illustration, one that is uh, laboring to the point of exhaustion. And the Old Testament equivalent of this word was used of a slave as he would labor in the fields. God is saying, I know that you're hard at work. This is a good personality. Even as I mentioned Shepherd's Conference, our church works hard. At times we have a thousand people volunteering to help men that come from all around the world. It's good to toil. At our eldest prayer meeting this morning, I learned about a brother who has been working really, really hard. And now he's ill because we were saying he's been burning the candle at both ends, working hard for the Lord. 
And I don't know any man, I don't know any other 81-year-old that works as hard as the man that is the pastor of this church. Works hard. It's good to work hard for the Lord. I grew up around men that worked hard. I'm favorable to have an example of hard-working men around me. And some of you may have seen on Facebook and on Twitter where I posted a picture of my dad um, and a beautiful picture of him, and it brought back memories to my own heart. And I talked about my dad was one of the old breed of men that has sort of this indomitable spirit. And despite the fact that even for him, that at times he could not drink at certain fountains and go to certain restaurants, he fought for his country. I mean, 82nd Airborne guy, 101st Airborne Ranger, Screaming Eagle guy. Essentially, his job was to jump out of planes and be rid of people. Hardworking. We should work hard in the ministry, should we not? Of course we should. It was a stable church. And notice as well what it says, perseverance. And again, Verse three, perseverance, and they have endured and they are motivated properly. They have endured for my name's sake. All that we do should be for the glory and honor of the Lord. It should be for his name. It was a stable church. This is good. It was also a separated church because they also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He says, which he God also hates. We see that in verse two, B and C. Then also in verse six, a, a commendation. I hate them as well. And we noted briefly the, the Nicolaitans were most likely tradition tells us led by name is his name Nicholas. And it was in they were involved in syncretism, that is taking some sense of Christianity and mixing it with emperor worship and perhaps even antinomianism. That is the sense in which we will not abide by law. We have this freedom. And perhaps what they had done is um, misunderstood Paul's teaching about liberty and said, we do not need uh, law or a moral um, standard. We set it aside. So it was a separated church. It was a pure church, we might say. But what else? There was a problem with this church, though. Notice this. The problem was this. Verse four. uh, What was it? They had abandoned the Lord. A strong word when he says left to abandon, to forsake, to dismiss. In 1 Corinthians 7, it means actually to divorce. Think about that for a moment. You have divorced the Lord. You have abandoned him. The one who has died for your soul, you have set him aside. But there was a diagnosis, just as one may go to the doctor, and the doctor provides a diagnosis because what they do is ask you a series of questions generally, or there may be some testing, and then they can make a diagnosis. And what was the diagnosis for them? It was this. They had lost an appreciation for this marriage bond that drew them to the Lord. And we see these images in Isaiah. Um, we see them also in Ezekiel, beautiful text. Let me turn with you to Ezekiel. Turn with me for a moment, if we can look um, to Ezekiel and see these images here. Beautiful images of marriage and intimacy, but yet they had lost it. They had lost it. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 8. Let me just briefly give you some of these images. God looks upon Israel and he says to them, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, 
You were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. So this wonderful image that says, yes, you were there. And once it's not really a nation, I'm going to make you a nation. And what did I do when I put my skirt over you? Uh, it's a way of saying I covered your shame. And God is saying now that I entered into a covenant with you and this covenant would be everlasting. Notice what he does in verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Notice verse 11. I adorned you with ornaments and bracelets and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. In verse 13, it talks about these adornments as well. Then notice verse 14. When I did this, now your reputation amplified. Verse 14, then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you. Pause there for a moment. What we must understand, that's a very important phrase. The only reason that Israel had any beauty, any attractiveness was when they would display the attractiveness and the beauty of God. And the same thing is true for you. You can only be a light in the world as you are doing what? Reflecting the light of Jesus Christ. Is this not right? Your attractiveness is based on how much you look like Jesus Christ. And the attractiveness of Israel was based on how much they looked like Yahweh. So notice verse um, 15. Here is that but. Just like in verse 4 of Revelation 2, but I have this against you. Notice what he says here. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. Amazing. You look at this wonderful image of a covenant relationship that God has entered with the people of God, and there is that but. This strong transition, this strong contrast. And so with Revelation 2, 4, but I have this against you. Yes, all these commendable things that you have, but I have this against you. Never live in this but. Never live in this transition. And if you're there, escape it as soon as you can. As soon as you can. Um, they lived for the world, although God had been in a covenant with them. The same thing is true in Hosea, this picture of a wonderful love that God has for his people despite uh, their sinfulness. Of course, in Revelation 19, we noted the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then in Revelation 21, all things are going to come together. But then it's this. I gave you eight symptoms. Let me remind you of them. One is, how do you know? Just like we go to the doctor and he asks us, does it hurt here? Is there a problem here? Recently, I had to go and see a specialist because of this issue I'm having in my leg. And he had me do certain things. Does this hurt? What about when you bend here? What about when I do that? Oh, I think this may be the issue. So you look at your life and ask, okay, um, do I have some of these symptoms? Have you, do you experience misplaced priorities in life? 
Are you becoming too familiar with holy things? That is, when it comes to reading the word or being with God's people, we look at it with a sense of indifference. And sometimes that's why churches are moving towards uh, being trying to be more novel, trying to be more like the world, because they want to give people something that is snappier, that is cooler, that is more vogue. This is when you become familiar with holy things. Uh, Do you suffer from an inconsistent prayer life? Number four, do you not appreciate God's word for just what it is? You, You have to study it all the time. You just can't read the word of God and meditate on the word of God in a devotional manner. And I said this before, and I'll say it again, despite whatever uh, letters follow my name, uh, I never want to grow out simply picking up the word of God and reading it and not having to study and not having to trace down a thought. It is alive and active, and I want it to have its effect on my life. Number five, obviously one cannot really be uh, pursuing their first love if they're engaged in some sin, and one cannot possibly think that this is a, a reasonable transfer, a reasonable trade. I mean, you're trading Christ for sin. That's the most foolish trade ever. I mean, friends, you talk about junk bonds. That is a junk bond. Don't make that investment. Um, number six was this. We can talk about God, but it stimulates the intellect, but not the emotions. Sound doctrine will always lead to sincere emotion. It will. When we can study something like the glory of God, when you can study something like the sovereignty of God, when you study something like the providence of God, I was in a discussion with a brother uh, recently, um, and I said, yeah, what, what is also happening in the world today, and I didn't actually say, well, I said the church, because my concern is first the church, is this. When clear doctrine is removed, the people of God cannot be properly energized. I, when I think about penal substitution, penal substitution is under attack today. And it's under attack even within churches. How can God punish his son? And now they call it, it's words like cosmic child abuse. So we cannot believe in penal substitution. Um, God the father did strike his son for us. Amen. And we should be able to say that with a sense of joy and appreciation. And the reality of penal substitution is this. We were deserving of God's wrath. Do you agree with that? And what happened on the cross? My God, my God, say it. Why have you done what? Forsaken me. And what did he say on the cross? It is finished. And then we cannot first look at that only, and I should say only, as something that just stimulates the intellect. It has to warm the heart. Is this really possible? Even as the songwriter said, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Is this possible? Because what did he say? Amazing love. When you think about the, the living God, who is the very creator of all things, would come and give his life for you. If that doesn't stimulate your heart in some way, I'm not sure if I can help you. Yeah. I'm not sure what sort of God you're serving. And this is why it's unfortunate for people that do not have sound doctrine, because they have a small God. 
And if, in fact, uh, I have a small God, uh, it will generate small worship. It will generate small uh, passions, affections for the living God. Number seven, you once had a great zeal for sharing your faith. Now it becomes passive. Those days in which you long to tell someone about what had happened to your life. It's sort of like the woman at the well. You remember her, John chapter four. And what did she do? She went into the town and did what? Was she silent? What did she do? She told everyone. I found a man who told me everything. And then she would bring him to Christ and Christ would engage with him. And then the people say, it's no longer because of what you said, because of what we have heard his words. There's that sense of zeal. Let me tell others about the Lord. And we see even accounts in the gospel where Christ has to say to them, go, don't tell anyone about this. Because he had this sense of anticipation. Let me tell others about what God has done for my soul. And then number eight was you keep making promises to correct it, but you never do. Lord, today I'll spend more time. Next week when I get through this project. Next week when this is over. What about when we get back from vacation? You know, the semester is starting now. I have a new job now. Whatever it may be. And you make the promises and then 2021 is gone. And you're where you were at the beginning. Don't let that happen to you. See, these are symptoms. And you say, well, I'm, I'm good in seven out of eight of those. But the one could be your death blow. So don't play percentages. Does that make sense? It is also this, the prescription for the heart. You have to, let me just briefly give them to you. You must remember your intimate times with the Lord. And this is what he says in the text itself in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Uh, verse 7 is a call to hear what the Spirit is saying. And there's so much we can say about remembrance. Remember acts, God's acts of grace. You can remember those things. Remember times of worship before the Lord as the psalmist did. And then next, you must, you must repent. You must repent. See it as a sin. And this is what the text tells us here. Unless you re- will repent, verse 5. You must repent. This is what must happen. And then the third is this. You must do what? Return. So remember, repent, and do what? Return. Remember, repent, and return. Those are the three steps. It's a threefold prescription. As I said last week, even make sure that you take the prescription as given. All of you have received some medication at some point in time, have you not? Or either you've given it to someone. And what is important? What's the first thing we do? Uh, perhaps you get the prescription at the, the pharmacist and the pharmacist will ask you what? Do you want to consult with me? And when they consult, what will they do? They will say, now make sure you do it in this order. Make sure it's in this context. Uh, With food, with water, um, 24 hours in between. Don't take any more of these within an eight-hour period of time. You must follow the prescription, and God has given a threefold prescription. We must follow it. So let me add some other principles to this. Let me give you three principles for maintaining your first love. Three principles for maintaining your first love. So 
Number one, make sure that you continue to strive for youthful affection. That you strive for youthful affection. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. And this is a text I didn't get to last week. And it it is so strategic, I think, even to this lesson that we heeded. Now, it's interesting that Jeremiah has been called, even it says in chapter 1, even from his mother's womb. God would call Jeremiah to be a prophet. And he would call out to the people of God that judgment is coming despite the false preachers. And at that time, prophets and priests would say, no, you should cry out peace to the people of God. Cry out peace, peace. And Jeremiah would say, peace, peace. But there is no peace. God would call him as a youth to, to dispense this message to the people of God. And so what is interesting here, this idea of youthfulness, God picks up on through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2. So important. Notice, I'll just read from verse 1 in Jeremiah 2. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth. Um, the love of your sort of beginnings, you're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Now, just that verse, so important for us to understand it. The ESV says this, uh, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember that devotion. Um, your love as a bride You followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And the net Bible, which I do refer to often, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament, says this. It says fond memories. It says here, your your love like a new bride. And what's interesting, this idea of these memories of the Lord, because, of course, what can happen to the mind we tend to forget. I cannot say that enough. I know I said it last week, but I cannot say it enough. And why? Because the Bible repeats it and repeats it and repeats it. Remember, remember, remember. Fun memories. The devotion of your youth. And this sense of devotion using a word that one of the richest words in scripture and and this word refers to the implications have to do with loyalty and covenant and faithfulness. Um, Something that must be clear in this point. And it's this one may be zealous without intimacy but you cannot be intimate and not be zealous. It's important for us to understand because that was true of the church at Ephesus. Zealous, absolutely, but not intimate. But if a person is intimate, you will be zealous. Intimacy will stimulate zealousness for the causes of the Lord because you have an affection for them or for a cause itself. How many of you, and I know you would, I'll ask it this way. Um, how many of you right now, you're, you're next to a loved one or a friend right now. Um, how many of you right now, and this, uh, hopefully this illustration doesn't trouble you, but um, how many of you right now, if you heard certain disturbing sounds on this campus, what would you do? 
And if you heard those disturbing sounds, and what if they were gunfire, what would you do? I mean, in that moment, you're with your wife, what do you do? Now, there's only one good answer here. (laughs) You do understand that, right? And all the men said, what? There's only one good answer. You, between the guy and who? Who's, go, who's going in front of your wife? <laughs> Did somebody say me? <laughs> no, I would because I'm a shepherd. I thought about that at times. My, your, my, Joanna can tell you I'm often thinking, I don't like that security. They should have somebody near that door. I'm often thinking that sort of way. I might. I've done it before. Well, she, you know about the um, Glendale Bible study about 20 years ago, right? Yes, oh boy, what a story that was. <clears throat> yeah, laying hands on him. Um, <laughs> yes. Why would you do that? Why isn't it automatic? Why would you grab your child and do this? Affection. It's an automatic. Would you have to calculate it? No. Matt Clint, would you have to calculate that? No, you would not for that beautiful new child that you have. You wouldn't have to think, let's see, what would be the best response to this situation? (laughs) No, what kicks in? Affection kicks, kicks in and it takes over. No, not my child. No, not my wife. No, not my people. Because you have an affection for them. What is your affection for God? He says, fond memories, the devotion of your youth. Remember those times. Absolutely. And here is the beauty of it all. And this is why it's so utterly ridiculous in one sense, why we would leave our first love, because we say what a wonderful example we have in Jesus Christ. And what did he do? My God, my God, why have you? forsaken me. And the son of man came not to give, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He did what? He stood. He did what? He gave. And you would trade stale religion for him? You would trade your schedule for him? You say, but I stand up for truth. I denounce false teachers. I work very hard. Hmm, commendable. But it's not the complete Christianity. See, strive for youthful devotion. Early detection in Alzheimer's is very important. Alzheimer's disease, which will often lead to dementia. As a matter of fact, 60 to 80% of all cases of dementia is because of Alzheimer's, which creates it. And it is obviously a disease of the age um, of cases 85 and above, about 38%, um, 74 to 84, 44%. In 65 to 74%, 15%, so you see it's obviously decreasing. And if you're under 65, 4% of those that have been, have a dementia is, 
it's, it's associated with that. 4%. So obviously it tells you with time, some things do what? They just don't work the way that they used to. Yeah. And what God says to Judah, remember your youth. And what I say to you this morning is remember your youth. Don't allow you, your soul, to forget the sweetness of who God is and what he has done for you. Here's the second principle. Make sure that you are careful in your walk of faith. Make sure that you're careful in your walk of faith. Turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 10. 2 Kings 10. Important text. Yes, zealousness is absolutely commendable. We see it throughout Scripture. Christ was absolutely zealous for the cause of his father. The church at Ephesus was zealous for the cause of Christ. You should be zealous as well. We need zealous men and women in the church today. Do you agree with that? But we must have men and women who are also uh, lovers of God. Um, Jehu. God has pronounced through uh, the prophet that Ahab's uh, line is going to be eradicated um, and that Jehu would eventually become king. And so Jehu is the hand of God to wipe out, wipe out the house of Ahab. And we know Ahab, wicked of wicked men, a wicked king with a wicked wife. But God... Uh, is still enacting, did enact in, is still enacting a principle of reaping and sowing. And so it begins. Notice if we just begin, let's jump in in verse 11. So Jehu killed all who remained at the house of Ahab at Jezreel and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until he left him without a survivor. Notice verse 14. He said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit at Belth Echad. 42 men, and he left none of them. Notice again, if you look at verse 15 to 17. 15 to 17, what is going to happen here? We see this genuine zeal for the Lord. Because in verse 14, as he's traveling to Samaria, he kills the relatives of um, Ahaziah. Yes, Ahaziah, Ahab's son. So he wipes them all out. And then we see his zeal for the Lord in 15 to 17. Now, when he had departed from there, he met um, Johananab, the son of Rechab, um, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? And he answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and took him into the chariot. Imagine this. So he's, he's still riding. He brings him into the chariot. He said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in the chariot. That's quite a, a chariot ride, is it not? He's saying, see how I am going to fight for the Lord. When he came to Samaria, now remember on his way to Samaria, he's already wiped out another part of Ahab's seed. He says when he comes to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him. According to what? According to what? What does it say? The word of the Lord. 
which he spoke to Elijah. So God's word is being fulfilled. And then we see in verses 18, really, to 28, he's going to destroy Baal worship throughout the kingdom. In 18 to 25, what happens here? Oh my, this is an invitation that you should not have, you should have ignored. So what happens? He gathers all the worshipers of Baal from Israel, and what does he do? He slays them all. Then notice verse 26 and 27. Then he brought out the sacred pillar of the house of Baal and burned them. Then he broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Amen? Because that's what it deserves. Anything that is contrary to the living God, this is all it deserves. And thus, it says in 28, thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Egypt. I'm sorry, Israel. You say, oh, this is wonderful. What a zealous individual. He is fighting the battle of the Lord. He's eradicated that horrible Baalism throughout um, the kingdom of God. Ah, but there is a problem. Hmm. My aunt, who's been with the Lord for some time now, my mother's younger sister, when she knew that I was going into the ministry, I remember one time going to her house and she said to me, she says, Carl, she says, make sure that you finish well. And she said, many preachers start well, but they don't finish well. It is about the finish, is it not? I mean, imagine that you're running a marathon. What is it, 26 and a half miles? Imagine you're running it, and there you are. You're on pace, mile 26. There you are, you, you, another quarter mile in. And there you are, 100 yards away, and you stop. So what do you gain for it? Nothing. Finish well. So he has this great zeal. He is fulfilling the word of the Lord. Uh, but notice what it says, though. There's another but. Notice verse 31. What does it say? Another but, just like it was with Israel. But you entrusted yourselves to the nations. Verse 4 of Revelation 2. But I have this against you. And here, but Jehu was not careful to walk on the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his what? Heart. Heart. And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. So he, he eradicates Baalism, but he doesn't eradicate this religion that Jeroboam had instituted in Israel. He doesn't go far enough. The church at Ephesus had a, a wonderful beginning and it was commendable, but they did not, they weren't finishing well. Let me briefly give you this idea, this word here, careful. Let me give you some examples of it. Careful. Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Because it says there to be careful to observe the law of the Lord, Joshua. You're going into the land. If you follow this law, you will be blessed and the people will be blessed. The word also is translated at times observe. Um, Exodus 12. The people of God are called to observe the feast of unleavened bread. Deuteronomy 5. You should observe the... the Sabbath and all that I've commanded you. Even in Hosea 12 and 6, it says, uh, we should turn there. Let's turn there. Look at Hosea with me. Beautiful example here. Hosea 
gives us this example. Keep skipping right past it. There we go. Hosea 12 and then verse 6. So here to observe 12 and 6 says this. Uh, verse 5, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God. Notice what it says, this idea of return, which we see in Revelation 2 as well, which we see throughout Scripture. Observe what? Kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. What a beautiful example that is. And wait for God. And at times in our intimate relationship with the Lord, what we must learn to do as well is waiting on God to operate in our life. Preserve. Psalm 91.11, it says the Lord will, um, I'm sorry, Psalms and Proverbs. Often we see God is going to preserve the godly. He's going to preserve those who are his people. This word guard, to guard, how, how can we be careful? We must guard. Um, Psalm 91.11. It says the Lord will guard your ways. We, we see this thought in Proverbs 2 and Proverbs 4 as well. God guarding our ways and even wisdom that will guard our ways. How about the word keep? Especially in the book of Deuteronomy. Constantly the idea of keep. Keep his commandments. Keep his statutes. Keep his precepts. And then this word watch. Um, Exodus 34, 12. It says, he says, watch over your hearts so that you don't enter into some covenant with the people of the land. And then in Deuteronomy 4.23, a similar thought there as well. Proverbs, look at Proverbs 6 with me. Proverbs 6.22. Proverbs 6.22. And here it says what? It says, verse 20 will help us. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your neck, on your heart, that is, and, and tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you wake, they will talk to you. Being careful. Are you careful in your walk with the Lord? Are you going to finish well? Here's a third principle that will bring us to a close. The third principle is this. Make sure that you remind yourself why loving God is important. Why loving God is important. Let's just, it come, let's just come back to this. Why is it important that I be a lover of God? Why does God say it to this church who is doing so many commendable things, but I have this against you? Why? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, because God is worthy of your unbated affection. God is worthy of your unbated affection. I mean, the whole of our faith is based on God's worth. We engage in worship, do we not? Which is a testimony of the magnitude of the object. And Yahweh is the object of our attention, our affection, and our service. The moment we lose any sense, we lose a sense of God's worth, then we're really undoing the very fabric of our faith, of our belief. When we begin our study in Isaiah 40 to 48, which will be maybe next month, one thing that we'll notice is God has a righteous indignation for his people and the nations who are following idols. They're involved in idolatry. Why? Of course, idolatry is worthless. Why is it worthless? Because the objects are worthless. They have no life and they can give life. They have no life, so therefore, therefore they cannot give any wisdom for life. 
you might consider Revelation 4 and 5. This wonderful picture of the worth of Jesus Christ who is slain, who is worthy of power and glory and honor. Number two, why is it important to love God in this way? Because God's love warrants reciprocation. He first loved us. 1 John 4.10 and 19, this reality, we did not first love him, but he loved us. And now we must love in return. Why does John speak so much about love? We see it here in the Revelation, but we see it in his epistle. We see it in his gospel. Remember, uh, for God so what? The world? Love. Greater love have no man than this, than he lay down his life. John chapter 5, we see Trinitarian love, the Father loving the Son together. In John 19, we see divine love, the same love that we have that they would have as well. And of course, the epitome of this love is him giving his very life. You lay down your life. Love. Reciprocate. Number three, because God's love must be emulated as a means of worship. I'm sorry, of witness. The scripture is clear. The world will know us by our love. And we cannot love each other properly if we do not have an affectionate love for God. And we might say it this way. Yes, we are called to fulfill the great commission. Absolutely. Christ's final words go into all the world. But I would say if we're going to properly fulfill the great commission, we cannot possibly do it until we fall at the feet of the great commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart. And this is why Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 would say that we're to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. And we should love as well. Number four is this, the fourth consideration. Because Christianity is a religion of relationship. It's a religion of relationship. Jesus Christ called them friends. But we're also called slaves and we're also called children. These relationships and that relationship must be nurtured. Why is it that even during this pandemic, that as people are apart, uh, why is it that people are struggling so much emotionally? Because we're meant to do what? Be in what? Relationship with one another. That's why. That's why when the doors open up here again, people are, oh, this is so good to be with people. The world is going to change. And I'm wondering what's even going to happen in the workplace as more and more people will work remotely. And I'm not saying that's bad necessarily, but one wonders what is going to happen to us socially. Health-wise, we have a relationship. You are my friend. You are my child. You are my slave. Work for me. I go away, he said to his disciples, remember, I go away to to prepare a place for you. Think about that. Here's a fifth consideration. Because Christianity is attacked most when its followers love the least. When we love the least. Peter in his restoration, what happened? What did he ask Peter when he was restoring him after he denied him? Did he say, do you work hard for me? Hmm. Do you persevere for me? Do you toil for me, Peter? What did he ask him? What did he say? Do you what? Say it. 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And whenever we make any other choices in life that move us away from that, that is an attack. And if we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and we're loving God, that is our armor from those attacks. Scripture is clear. What is it? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love me. Why is the church attacked so often? Why are some churches weak? They don't really love God. A final thought for you. How do we learn from a forgiven sinner? Luke chapter 7. Final thought. Motivation is so important. Um, We need motivation for any number of things in life. We surely need motivation to live the Christian life. Luke 7. It says this. Now, one of the Pharisees were requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. So we can appreciate her heart. She hears that Christ is there. Let me go to Christ. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors and one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which will love him? What? What does it say? More. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. Turning aside toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? He refers to what she's done. For him, and he says, verse 47, for this reason, I say to you, your sins, which are many, have been forgiven. But this is the point. Notice, listen. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves what? Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Question for you today, this morning. How much have you been forgiven? forgiven. See, this is why theology is important. When people don't believe in things like original sin, inherent sin, total inability, then you don't love as much. But if you realize the heinous nature of sin, then you say, I am forgiven, and now I'm a child, and now I'm a friend, and now I could be a slave for Christ. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, that God, would die for me? Father, we thank you for your words you give us. Uh, Move in our hearts to love you as we should. In Christ's name, amen.